Are you part of the 87% of Americans open to new job opportunities? You've probably visited several job search websites with little or no success. Try www.find.jobs. Find.jobs uses artificial intelligence to match your search with over 8 million fresh job openings. With a more accurate search, you will only be presented jobs relevant to your interests, helping you find your dream job quickly. Bring smart search to your job search at www.find.jobs. Visit find.jobs today. I think we're all familiar with prototyping, at least at a high level. Prototyping is what we do to figure out how to make something work. The word prototype might conjure images of late-stage, make-it-or-break-it situations where the fruit of your labor is either a monumental success or an outright failure, like a mad scientist testing his DeLorean-turned-time machine for the first time. My real hope is that prototyping conjures images of sketches on paper or duct tape, wires, and batteries. With a disclaimer, it's not going to look like this, but this is how it might work. Prototyping typically rises in fidelity as the design progresses. It lives in the moments where thinking becomes doing, when it's no longer sufficient to imagine how it will work, but rather see and feel how it will work. Whatever discipline of design is our focus, there are tools and methods that are our go-tos. Visual designers might use Sketch or Envision, or a combination of the two. User experience designers might use UXPIN, Adobe XD, or Axure, or even better, pen and paper. Developers might go straight to HTML, CSS, JavaScript, or Python, and industrial designers might use foam core, clay, glue guns, duct tape, and 3D printers. Whatever the tool might be, the idea is to create something that helps you envision what it will be like to use the design, ideally before you go too far down the wrong path. Basically, we want to fail as early as possible so you can learn and move on. I'm sure no one listening to this right now will dispute the idea that prototyping is valuable to the design process. But I challenge you to make it a requirement, not a nice-to-have. And I'm sure many of you do. There's a reason I'm emphasizing this. I would venture to guess that nearly every one of you creates your designs tethered to a desk, or at least sitting in front of a computer, nowhere near the context with which your design will be used. It's absolutely necessary for us to get out of our seats, live our designs, just merely acting out a situation can tell you a lot about whether your idea might work or if it's just ridiculous. I think it back to one of the first books I read as the mobile web was gaining in popularity in the early 2000s. The book was called Mobile Web Design by Cameron Mall. He unapologetically called out the uniquely American trait of using the term cell phone. We were and still are one of the only cultures in the world that still refers to their phones in terms of the technology that drives it, cellular frequencies rather than the benefit it provides, mobility. It's a mobile phone. You are free to roam. We're not designing for the technology. We're designing for the user in their unique context. This simple reframing of the term drives home the point that the context with which we create our designs is far different than the context in which we use those designs. Let's jump forward from 2003 to present day. Smartphones are ubiquitous. The Internet of Things and artificial intelligence are becoming reality. Drones will soon deliver products within hours or even minutes of processing an order. And autonomous vehicles are one regulation change closer to your driveway. If you drive around Northern California or even Pittsburgh, you can experience this firsthand. If you're lucky enough, your Uber driver in these areas is a computer, and the human will just be there to take over if the crap hits the fan. These are working, functional prototypes of what is surely to come. But how do we, as designers, make sure that we're covering all our bases? 
Are we getting caught up in this hyper-competitive place in history where we're putting too much focus on the technology? Are we putting as much weight on the impact these technologies have on society as we are on our vision of what the technology can do? This is your host, Jonathan Morgan, and you're listening to Design Everywhere, the show that invites you to ask what if and challenges you to understand the why that drives your designs. In this episode, we'll focus on prototyping, more specifically on how we need to approach prototyping and the evaluation of our designs, not just to understand how well our products serve the needs of their users, but also how these designs might impact the web of people that are indirectly impacted by our designs. We'll have the pleasure of speaking with Wendy Ju. She's the former executive director of design research for Stanford University and currently an associate professor in information science at Cornell University. We'll talk to her about her extensive work in the research and design of autonomous vehicles and robots. We'll also take time to follow an MIT researcher on a decades-long journey from weirdo to the father of wearable computing. We'll see how this man's experiences as a living prototype could have saved one of the world's most prolific brands from seemingly epic commercial failure. If we could start out, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and kind of what you do and how you got to where you are today? Yeah. So my name is Wendy Ju. I'm an interaction design researcher. I actually have a PhD in mechanical engineering, but what I'm really interested in is the experiences people have with machines. And one of the things I'm particularly interested in is these future products where a lot of the things that are happening won't be just under the command of people, but things that the machines will be like initiating and suggesting. And so what I've kind of picked as my particular interest is thinking about how to prototype these interactions where there's much more back and forth. It's much more like a conversation that you're having with an object, even if it's not necessarily a speech conversation. And one of the things that's really challenging about prototyping these things is that you, you have to come up with ways to prototype technologies that don't exist. So a lot of my research methods are kind of about getting a person in the loop to kind of figure out what the interaction should be like so that we can understand what that conversation is like so that we can design the objects of tomorrow. I'm going to start with the story. Late one night in 2004, a man was abruptly awakened by a loud crash. The walls of his bedroom were shaking. He jumped out of bed and ran to the front door to find that a car had slammed into the side of his house. As he approached the car, the driver shifted into reverse and floored it, hitting the man and running over his foot. The car sped away, and the man was left injured on the ground. That might have been the end of the story, just another hit-and-run accident. But the victim of this story wasn't any man. This man was Steve Mann, the person widely believed to be the father of wearable computing and augmented reality. And on that day, like most other days for the previous three decades, Steve Mann was wearing an iteration of his WearComp, a computerized wearable vision system. Everything that just happened was recorded in real time from a device mounted on his face. Now, Steve Mann is an outspoken proponent of privacy when it comes to technology. So this iteration of his device was designed to purge video almost as quickly as it was recorded. But as luck had it, the headset was damaged in the process and the footage remained intact. And as such, a full accounting of the events that took place was saved. He had evidence of what happened early that morning, all recorded from a computer he wore on his face, even while he slept. But this is Steve Mann in a nutshell. He not only designed and developed his inventions, he lived them 24-7. Since the early 1970s, he has worn his prototypes like others wear a hat, a sometimes insane-looking contraption that made even the most hardened people cross the street rather than interface with him. Steve's journey reportedly began when his father first taught him to weld, 
He saw that while a welding helmet adequately protects the eyes from the damaging brightness of the arc, everything surrounding the arc was rendered as complete darkness. All you can see is this intense dot of light. So he thought to use technology, video cameras, displays, light sensors, and computers, to create a new kind of reality for welders. He chose to call his first iteration of the wear comp the digital eyeglass, rather than eyeglasses. He felt that since welders referred to their gear in the first person, so should he. This piece of insight didn't fall on deaf ears at Google when they named their face-mounted wearable computer. Let's fast forward to 2012. Sergey Brin just introduced Google Glass in a series of events. He demonstrated how it could shoot video and augment the physical environment with information from the internet. Google placed a layer of aesthetic elegance over the functional elegance of Steve Mann's inspiration. Brin used the rules of scarcity to lure in early adopters to battle for first dibs on beta headsets. He asked people to prove themselves worthy on Twitter through an accompanying hashtag of if I had glass. Brin's slightly authoritarian spin on Willy Wonka's golden ticket. All the winners had to do is shell out $1,500 for their chance to be the coolest person in the room. Early glass users brought to light several functional problems right off the bat. The shape of some of the users' faces made it difficult for them to see through the eyepiece. I fell into this category. Others found the location of the screen to be difficult to toggle between the virtual and physical worlds. But altogether, it was seen as a pretty cool piece of technology and that it had some potential to provide value. Steve Mann was excited that a product which was surely informed by decades of his work was finally going mainstream. But he was also troubled by the execution of Glass. In one article, he says, quote, I worry that Google and certain other companies are neglecting some of the important lessons. Their design decisions could make it hard for many folks to use these systems, end quote. More specifically, after using such devices, he felt the, quote, troubling effects that persisted long after I took the gear off. That's because my brain had adjusted to the unnatural view, so it took a while to readjust to normal vision, end quote. This is something Steve Mann experienced himself in his own early prototypes and found effective methods to overcome. But something else troubled him more than the execution of the technology. He was troubled by the perception of the technology. Remember, Steve had been wearing similar devices on his head for years, and he was not very well accepted. On a good day, he was met with freakish curiosity from bystanders. On a bad day, well, that's another story that might just have been the primary predictor of the ultimate demise of Google Glass in the consumer market and also the rise of the term glass hole. This is the story of the assault on Steve Mann at a Paris McDonald's. It happened on July 1st, 2012, a few short months after Sergey Brin unveiled glass to the world. Steve had just sat down to eat his, quote, McDonald's ranch wrap, when some customers confronted him over the contraption he was wearing on his head. Note that this was one of his contraptions and not Google Glass. They were not happy at all about the perceived violation of their privacy, Basically, this weirdo was filming them, and they did not like it. A confrontation ensued that quickly turned physical. This iteration of the device, the eye tap, was physically attached to his head. You would need tools to get this thing off of him. But, unfortunately for Steve, that did not stop the men from trying. He was eventually dragged to the ground and physically thrown out the door. Opportunistically, lightning struck twice for Steve. The impact of being tossed around temporarily stopped the device from functioning so it retained the video of the assault rather than quickly purging it from memory. And again, Steve had evidence of what just happened for use in court. While this retention of video benefited Steve in this case, the concept of this invasion of privacy, whether real or perceived, is a troubling effect of the technology. Steve feared that all of his work would be for nothing if the world didn't trust the technology or the user of the technology. Where he once envisioned his innovations as a force for good, he now spoke of a darker side. He asked that, quote, 
instead of acting as a counterweight to Big Brother, could this technology turn into so many little brothers? End quote. We can design all the privacy safeguards we want into the product, but it's just as critical that we consider how the technology is perceived by the people that are around the wearer. What is their perception of their own privacy? If we don't get this right, will trust in any disruptive innovation erode completely? Simple Google search for glass hole physically assaulted might be the answer to that question. So, how could one of the world's most successful companies not see this monumental flaw in their design? No matter how elegant you make the product look, the perception of the purpose of the device now extends to the person wearing it. So, these early adopters went from sitting at the cool kids' table to sitting in the emergency room, and the multi-million dollar experiment of glass was shut down. I'd like to make a quick note that Google Glass has now likely found its way, not in the consumer market, at least in the form we're familiar with, but in the industrial space. This is a much more controlled environment, a perfect fit for augmented reality and devices like glass. Steve Mann is the quintessential technologist and futurist. Over the years, his work has led to innovations like high dynamic range imaging or HDR, the concept and term blog, the concepts that have led to the conversational platforms like Alexa and Siri, and of course, augmented reality, mixed reality, and glass. He did what was right when developing the technology to drive his vision of the future. He iterated, tested, pivoted, and was perpetually connected to his product, both figuratively and literally. But when some of his ideas were commercialized, some dark truths materialized. Truths that might apply to just about anything we design. The impact of our designs reach far further than just the people using them. That's why we prototype. That's why we test our designs in the context with which they will be used. That's why we need to extend our evaluations past merely the usability of our design. We must also evaluate how the design impacts others who are indirectly experiencing it. Steve Mann asked himself, as only Steve Mann could, quote, Why did I go to such extremes? Because I realized the future of computing was as much about communications between people wearing computers as it was about performing colossal computations. I read in one of your papers, and I'm trying to trying to think of which one, but I, I can't remember exactly which one, but you talk about the process of starting out on a project like this where you break down what you think would be the interactions that take place and then work to either approve or disprove those. Is that, is that a correct uh, uh, translation? Yeah. Very often what we do when I'm designing human-robot interaction or human-machine interaction is... I just played this game of, what if it was a person on the other side? I use, for example, what would a doorman do if you're thinking about how you want to design an automatic door? And, you know, when are you looking at the doorman? When is the doorman signaling? Why? You know, are, are all these different other things in the... So I noticed that, like, doormen are often dressed differently than the normal population. And I realized, like, oh, you need to know that there is a doorman and there's a possibility the door could open well in advance of being able to actually see the actual door. And so... We have these stickers on the on automatic doors that say automatic door, but in some of those fancier, swankier places, they don't have those stickers, and so the, the doors are always alarming. So thinking about different ways to call attention to the fact that there's a possibility for interaction well in advance of the actual, you know, pragmatic action taking place is important. So I spent a lot of time just kind of breaking down what the human-human interaction pattern is, and I think the thing to know is that's not the only successful possible interaction pattern, but it at least is a successful interaction pattern. And if we break down like why different kinds of signaling are going on at different points in time, 
we can then figure out like what are good substitutes or proxies that could be placed into the interaction pattern if you're dealing with a machine that doesn't have eyes or the ability to wear a costume or gloves. Like what are other things you can do that perform the same task of, you know, either showing that there's a door ahead of time or, you know, sometimes doormen put things, put their hands on the door handle and pull open a little bit. And it's both an offer, but it also contains all this information about which way the door opens, how quickly the door opens. You know, you can see how heavy the door is. So we can think about, oh, what are other ways that we could achieve that same kind of communication without necessarily having a person standing there with gloves on their hands opening the door? A lot of my process starts out that way. It's just a hypothesis that's built on some existing interaction. We think that the human-machine interaction will be like the human-human interaction. But then we do experiments just to check to see if it's true or which ways it's true and which ways it's not true. And I, I think my favorite research moments are always these moments where there are these divergences between what you expect in a human-human interaction and what happens in a human-machine interaction. And after the fact, they make sense. Going in, you just never would guess. It reminds me of like one of the aha moments that I got from uh, one of your studies was on the chair bot. And at least what I took away from it is that when we, we put these technologies out into the world, there seems to be a desire to connect to these things in more of a human-to-human way. Maybe you can talk about that a little bit. One of the outcomes of, of that, the Chairbot study was interesting to me to just to see how people reacted differently to cues the first time they experienced them to the subsequent ways they experienced them. Yeah, if you don't mind, I want to share maybe one of the, the more mature anecdotes comes from some of the work that we're doing with this trash bell robot. We have this trash barrel that we can teleoperate and have run around in, in public places where people are eating lunch. We thought it's a little bit like a busboy. You know, it comes around and picks up extraneous trash. And so what we expected is that if we drove around and um, kind of wiggled the garbage can at people, that people would put garbage in and then, and then thank the garbage can. Because that's what we noticed is happening with the service workers. And we were really surprised because what we, what we noticed happening was something a little bit different. When people put garbage in the garbage can, like they expect it to be thanked. So we would wiggle the garbage can just to draw attention to the garbage can, but people also expected to wiggle afterwards. And if, um, in, in a few instances, because um, of where the cameras were on the garbage can, the person who was operating the garbage can couldn't see that people had kind of thrown garbage in basically over <laughs> the garbage can's shoulder. And so it wouldn't stop and wiggle at them to acknowledge it. And those people were super angry. And they would say like, you know, I put garbage in and it wasn't even thanked. We realized that people think of the garbage can as wanting to eat trash. They think they're doing the garbage can a favor by putting trash in. And that is really different than, you know, the relationship we have with service workers. And so it's kind of low status. It's, it's like a beggar. And I think it's such an important difference to point out to roboticists because it's an easy thing to miss. All the time, when we tell people who design robots this kind of thing, they're resistant. They say things like, well, you know, if you made it talk or if you had eyes and hands, the garbage can would be higher status. And, you know, I try to say, like, you know, I think it's okay because it's a garbage can for it to be low status. I think people are comfortable with that. They like that they're helping the garbage can by putting garbage in. We just need to know that because if it comes in and it seems a little high-handed, people will be upset. And I think it's a little bit difficult for people who are designing machines to separate their own ego from the thing they're designing. You know, <laughs> you know like they want to make it a high status, you know, very capable 
very intelligent robot, but that's not necessarily what the world is asking for. And so that, that's the kind of thing that we like to do, just like to, to see those differences and, 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 and take that as insight for the design. It's an interesting point because I think the ego of the designer is something that, you know, has been around forever. Even, you know, designing something like a trash can that goes around and assists people in throwing away their trash, that ego is going to exist unless there's ways to kind of lead that in a better way or in a more positive direction. Have you seen that with any of the other technologies you've worked with, that this kind of desire to still bring the type of attention to the design is something that needs to be overcome? We find that tendency in ourselves. I remember really early on, David Cirk and I were working on a, a kiosk, and what we noticed in traditional kiosks is that people just rarely go up to them. I think because it's not clear what the kiosk has to offer, people are often really hesitant. So we just um, added just a moving part, an arm, you know, with either an arrow or a hand on, and had it waving. And David Sirkin really wanted to make a steampunk kiosk because a kiosk is so boring, you know? <laughs> and it, it's so recessive. And, and it, it's really hard as a designer not to just like kind of give it a frill, you know, <laughs> or, or something to make it special. But the, the goal that we have is to have the thing that is different and special about the objects we're making be the interaction. I really like that people are always trying to feature different robots we're making in magazines or newspapers. And they're like, well, we'll take a picture of your robot. And it's like, well, okay, but you realize when, we, when you take a picture, it's just going to be a picture of a garbage can. Without the motion, you really wouldn't see what's going on. And that is us trying to really buckle down and have the focus of the design be on the interaction. And in fact, I, I want to feel like if, if you don't actually have a participant or another person in the frame, that just watching the video of the robot would be not very thrilling at all either, because we're really trying to focus on the interaction, like that back and forth. For us, since the thing we're making is not a product, but almost like a message, you know, for designers about what it is to do interaction design and what we need to be paying attention to, it's super important that everything else be recessive and, and, and not draw attention to itself. And I think in the product version, you could definitely do more industrial design, definitely put more flourishes in the motion. You know, again, just pointing to the interaction is the thing that we're really trying to do in our research. Pick up a Wired magazine, Fast Company, or MIT Technology Review, and you'll see that technological innovation is happening at an accelerated pace. Researchers, designers, and engineers are proving daily that what was seen as science fiction just a few years ago can actually be reality. But what happens when these seemingly wild, innovative technologies do become a reality? What happens when you've figured it out? You created the impossible. How will people react to this new reality? What implications will your game-changing product, application, or service have on the world? How will it affect those people using the innovation, and how will it affect those around them? True innovation is often disruptive. It requires people to challenge their understanding of what is considered normal. It requires a shift in understanding for everyone experiencing the innovation, not only those using it. What we create doesn't only affect its users, but also those around them. Steve Mann taught us this valuable lesson. But how do we get ahead of our innovations and evaluate them before they actually exist? That sounds impossible, but this is the space where research and design often lives. If we do it right, we can learn the impact of the possible before it's a reality by testing the implications of the hypothetical in the real world. You may have heard the news in the summer of 2017 that a group of Northern Virginia residents were alarmed by an unoccupied van cruising around their neighborhood. 
there was no driver at the wheel. Autonomous vehicles might be technically possible, but no one expects to see a fully automated van cruise by. It's not even legal yet, right? What they didn't know is that they were indirectly part of a research study conducted by a group at the Virginia Tech Transportation Institute. They were studying how driverless vehicles will interact with people on the road. They were testing a new language between vehicles and humans when a human is no longer behind the wheel. They wanted to see if they could create a method to replace the subtle cues communicated between drivers and pedestrians. They wanted to know if what was created, a light bar on the van's windshield, could replace a nod, wave, glance, or hand gesture. Whether we recognize this or not, this is how drivers and pedestrians communicate whether it's safe to drive through an intersection or across a street. They used a series of visual gestures on the light bar to notify everyone around the vehicle that it was starting, stopping, or getting ready to move. Past research efforts in the autonomous vehicle space have always had a trained operator behind the wheel just in case something went wrong. Like it or not, this is the law of the land. Because there is someone behind the wheel, the pedestrian has provided a sense of security that, at any point, a human can jump in and take control. We need the peace of mind to know that if your nod was noticed by the operator, but not the vehicle, she'll take over and make sure everyone remains safe. But there's not always going to be an operator in the vehicle. That's one of the primary goals of autonomous vehicles, that in the near future, we won't need a driver to be present at all. As designers, we can't just wait until the technology is complete and the laws have been changed to begin testing its impact on the perceptions of people experiencing it. So Ford took inspiration from Wendy Ju, the former executive director of design research at Stanford University. They redesigned the front driver's seat of the van to comfortably sit a person dressed up like a car seat. They essentially faked the experience of a driverless car while still having a person firmly in control. In fact, there was no autonomous vehicle technology present in the van. It was purely smoke and mirrors, and it worked. This technique of enacting technology is simple, smart, and immediate. It allowed the team to get unbiased feedback from people in context, something that, if done with the technology in place, would have been unlawful and unsafe in reality. This simple experiment with a car seat suit provided 150 hours and 1,800 miles of data for the team to evaluate. With it, Ford is able to start work on developing the unspoken language between machine and human on the streets of America. Because of this head start, they will be prepared when the technology is functional and safe. And of course, the regulatory switch has been flicked. We spoke with Wendy about the inspiration she provided, as well as her approach to prototyping these types of innovations. I mean, I think our, our design process often starts with a concept of something that we're interested in. And just within our research group, like in the meetings when we're talking about it, we'll discuss it and there's a lot of acting out. And then we usually move to a point where we try to bring in dancers or actors, or people who are a little bit more, they've really focused on doing improv. And we'll workshop ideas with them. And at that point, we move from just using our bodies to using props. So there's just a little time spent grabbing objects and things for props, but we're often um, moving objects around on sticks, you know, or by hand, you know. <laughs> We'll, we'll workshop a bunch of scenarios and work through what we think the interesting issues are there. And, and those are a little bit all over the place. And from there, we'll usually focus in on one or two things that we, we're interested in learning more. And then we'll build something that at least can be teleoperated and move towards doing a field experiment. At every stage, we always get ideas that weren't present at the very first meeting when we're just like kicking stuff around. It's also a thread that I think really runs through we often use IKEA furniture because it's so ubiquitous and it's, you know, they've got that modernist look, so it's, it's very minimal. 
And so I think it's funny, I was told by other people that we work on minimal robots. And I was a little offended. I mean, like our robots are very interactively sophisticated and doing things that will take a long time to replicate, you know, with actual technology. But from the perspective of everything you, you can see at a glance, I guess they are minimal. I think it's interesting that you kind of say like how you start out is very physical and very kind of acting out scenarios and using props and things like that. It, it seems like a very low fidelity way to work out concepts. Yeah, and I think that's kind of at the heart of prototyping. Like you want to be able to throw out many ideas quickly and cheaply. In fact, having invested very little in each idea makes it possible for the idea to, you know, sink or shine on its own weight. And so sometimes I feel like if you spend a lot of time building something, it, it can blind you to whether it's any good or not because you've invested so much in it. We try to make sure we have a lot of ideas. We try to make sure we have invested very little upfront. And that makes it easier to kind of see if something's interesting on its own merits. I think there are some people who are able to do the other thing where they can invest a lot in something and still declare it to be garbage at the end of the day, but I, I have difficulty with that. You know, when we go through these cycles of prototyping, that kind of improv technique and that acting out, and you move through varying stages of increasing fidelity, do you validate in some way between any one of these? And what might that look like as fidelity increases? Coming from a more academic perspective, you're, there's a lot of rigor there. But how is it that you kind of incrementally gain your, your confidence through the design process? Yeah, that's an interesting question. So because I'm in the academic space and our bread and butter has to do with publications, we very often validate our designs using controlled studies where we pick out one or two dimensions that we can control, like whether a garbage can is coming your way, is coming straight at you, if it comes in from the side. And then we, we approach people and we, we have some hypotheses of what we think matters, and then we have some outcome. But we basically write these papers, we describe a kind of elaborate design process, and then we have this really simple validation at the end. And it's really because this is where the academic world is at. They understand controlled studies, um, which have kind of a history that comes from psychology and media studies. They know what it means to get a statistically significant result. And so they feel comfortable publishing something like that. And meanwhile, you know, if the, the front half of the paper, which describes design process, which is really the meat of the paper, I think for the larger academic community, they just don't really know how to evaluate whether that's good or bad or when it's done. And so it's impossible, almost impossible to get a paper like that published without that validation study. I think for designers, we all know that design is never done. So for us, it takes a while to get to the point that we feel really certain about what the design insight is in a lot of the things that we're doing. Absolutely. The work I've experienced of yours is this idea of kind of faking it till you make it, this Wizard of Oz technique. So maybe if you can kind of go into that process. Yeah, so we're looking at how people are going to interact with systems that are someday going to be autonomous, but really what's going on in, in the actual interaction that we have is that there's a person behind a curtain or another room who's actually controlling the robot, looking at what's going on. Sometimes it's not even just one person, sometimes it's like a whole team of people getting together and looking at what's happening and trying to decide what to do next. This technique is called Wizard of Oz because there is a person behind the curtain and also because the Wizard of Oz was a charlatan who just pretended he had magical powers. It was just a bunch of stagecraft. In our research, we were very literally taking stagecraft techniques for 
making an experience seem a certain way so that we can understand like how that experience should unfold. There's some parts of, like I'm saying, improv. So we're treating each action from the participant as a gift that we have to respond to anew each time. We are doing different things to kind of get people to focus on this or that so they're not really focused on how is this technology working? We want to make sure there's enough of a narrative. The narrative is the simpler thing to pay attention to than the complicated story of how things are actually happening. And we use that to then just like help these interactions unfold so that we can actually understand how people might react if the autonomous system behaved this or that way. Really early on, there was a system that it was at Microsoft Research and it was um, before they had Clippy. They basically, to understand what personal desktop assistant character might do, they actually had experts in the next room like watching all the things that a person was doing on their desktop and then the experts would then like say like it looks like maybe you're trying to figure out how to print and give you assistance and so that actually led to microsoft clippy and then one of the really sad things is that you know the original system was based on having a whole person there and that person you know could see all these things are going on had all the intelligence of a person and the working research prototypes had these expert system early AI things where they collected all of this evidence to kind of guess probabilistically what you were trying to do and then would give you advice. But the product version was just this rule-based version where if your mouse came anywhere near print, some you know, horrible paperclip would jump up and say, like, it looks like you're trying to print. This is like really lovely history of how Wizard of Oz can happen and also, you know, like almost fable about how you want to be really careful about releasing a technology before its time is really due. There's a lot of what we're doing that comes from that lineage. And then we're just moving it more into the physical space. We've been doing a lot of work in the autonomous vehicle space with Wizard of Oz technology. One of the things is that you really want to understand how people are going to interact when they're in the real world with all the distractions and like weird things that are going on on your day-to-day drive. But it's not normally legal to have a real autonomous car on the road with passengers, but we can actually have fake automation really easily in that Let's just just find out like how people want to behave in all these different situations. That is uh, one of the ways that that I found out about you and your work is some of the news last summer around the seemingly autonomous vehicle driving around Arlington, Virginia. Can you talk about that a little bit about the the ghost driver? Yeah, you know, actually, a ghost driver started out with we had this um, visiting researcher named Dirth Rothenbucher at the Center for Design Research who was constantly at every meeting bringing up like I'm a bicyclist I bike everywhere what are we going to do when bicyclists encounter autonomous cars how is the autonomous car going to be able to negotiate with the bicyclist like who's going to cross first it's life or death and then there is a meeting where someone just had this wonderful video from Rahat um, of a guy in a car seat costume going through drive throughs scaring fast food workers and we were just like laughing so hard. It was so funny. And it was like the kinds of things we did. And then I don't actually remember who in the research group said, we need to do this to solve Dirk's bicyclist problem. And we were just like howling. We're like, oh my God, we definitely need to do this. You know, it started off a little bit as a prank, but also like a very serious concern. You know, like everyone was really focused on how people who buy these cars are riding in the autonomous cars are going to interact with the cars. But Then there's the rest of us who didn't sign up for an autonomous car at all, and we're still going to have implications for our lives. So we actually ordered car seat cover, and we had a person wearing a car seat costume. And we spent a lot of time actually scouting, like, what's a good location to run an experiment? Then just had the car, like, 
kind of coming up to stop waiting for pedestrians to come and then like seeing when people felt comfortable walking from the car, what would happen that would make, you know, people look at the car, what would make them feel uncomfortable walk around the car. And one of the things that we found right away when we started to do just the pilot experiments is that we just, like the thing that we all know that we do, we all know that we look into the eyes of the driver and see if they see us and then we decide to go. This turns out not to happen at all. <laughs> we, like, like, we, we, you know, had this like car seat costume and people would like see the car coming and then they would walk out in front of the car and like we'd chase them down and ask them about the car. And like some startling percentage of the time people didn't even remember seeing a car. And we're just like, but we saw you. <laughs> like, like We saw you look at the car. We saw you walk in front of the car. And then even if they are looking at the car, they're just looking at the front wheel to see when the wheels stop. We actually had to do all sorts of crazy things to get people to notice the car. So we actually had the car dressed up in costume. We put fake LIDAR and like old, you know, like radar sensors on them. The thing that actually like tipped it into the point that we could actually interview people about the car was that when people entered the crosswalk, we would nudge forward a little bit and then stop. And then people looked up and then people noticed that there's no person <laughs> behind the wheel then no one seemed to like be flappable or, you know, they would walk in front of the car anyway. And then we would, you know, interview them and they're like, oh yeah, I thought it was a bad driver. And I noticed there wasn't a driver that was a Thomas car. He did a good job. (laughs) (laughs) So maybe the main takeaway is that here's this behavior we're sure is the pattern. The hypothetical pattern is we all look up and we negotiate with the driver and we decide how to cross then. That is not what is actually happening what normally happens is we pretty much just cross. And people actually do a lot to avoid crossing the same time as cars. They'll like walk faster or slow. We actually to do all sorts of hijinks just to get the car and the person to show up at the intersection at the same time. What we remember as the typical interaction is actually the breakdown pattern. We only look up when something unusual happens and the normal pattern isn't operational. And then we look up to negotiate what's gonna go on. And usually then we get some clear signal then we go. This is like one of those great examples of like, we have this hypothesis, we're sure of it, we know about it from everyday interaction, and it's just completely wrong. You know? <laughs> so, so it took your suit to figure that out, though. I mean, oh, it, I know, it, yeah. <laughs> I think of myself as being at least relatively conscious of what's going on around me. Mm-hmm. And I think this is kind of highlighting that we might give ourselves a little bit too much credit on these things. And thinking of moving something like autonomous vehicles forward and getting adoption to happen, you're as much dealing with the perceived reality as you are the reality. You know, it's it's part of the challenge of moving any new technology forward is getting people to feel comfortable with it, whether it's the reality of the situation or not, that you have to find a way to communicate. Yeah, but I mean, I think a lot of the things that we need to do as interaction designers is, is figure out the point of engagement. And there's a lot of pre-queuing of any actual engagement that we do. Say, for example, the people that we talk to at car companies, they're really focused on what is the display that will make the most sense to people. And they show people all these different prototypes of displays. And what our research shows is that it's going to be challenging to get people to even notice that there is a display because they're not even looking at the car. So that opening where you think you have engagement, that's not something you can actually take for granted. You have to do all sorts of things to draw people in to even look at the display that you've designed so nicely. You know, I think that's, for me, one of the constant lessons of implicit interactions, that there's a lot of pre-queuing that goes on before any explicit interaction. 
that is a precursor. Like if you don't actually negotiate that, there is no interaction, no matter how nicely it's designed. That's a really important thing to take into account. You're kind of priming them with something just to bring the attention to where it needs to be. Am I hearing that right? Yeah, so basically if people think they know what they're seeing, they stop looking. Like for example, (laughs) one thing that people do that we're starting to notice that people are super tuned to is that if you see a pedestrian coming up, you hit the brakes, even if you actually have plenty of time to stop. And that little decrease in, you know, that little bit of deceleration is actually the signal pedestrians are looking for to know it's safe to cross. Wendy, one last thing. I think so much of what we're designing now and going forward is going to have more and more of these kind of new interaction patterns that we're going to have to figure out because they weren't really available to us before. Yeah. I mean, I think at the end of the day, what I'm interested in producing are are the designers of tomorrow who have sensitivities to these factors that are really important in interaction. I'm looking to like make people sensitive to the ways that we're communicating non-verbally, all these like nuances of context that affect the interaction. The fact that there's a kind of a language and a dialogue even when there aren't words being used. You know, I'm, I'm getting to the point where I feel like it's less like when I'm talking that people are looking at me and saying, what is she saying? And more now, like people are like, oh, I was thinking about that and that, that makes sense. So it's, it's heartening. I feel like the, the field is moving, you know, in the direction where we're, we're all starting to get on the same page about what it is we're doing as interaction designers. Not every idea, innovation, or technology will be a success, no matter how much experimentation or prototyping we do. But history tells us again and again that we are far more likely to succeed when we apply the learnings from experimentations. Design is an art and a science. Prototyping is as much about understanding the impact of ergonomics and how usable something is, as it is about the impact the product will have on the experience of all the people that come into contact with it, no matter what you believe. Whether you're resistant or welcoming of new technology or innovations, they're coming, with or without your blessing. It's up to designers to consider all of the ramifications and impact of their design decisions. It's better for your design and the forward progress of the technologies that drive them. In other words, don't screw it up for the rest of us. This concludes our first season of Design Everywhere. This season was meant to expose designers, innovators, and creative people of all types to some potential new ways of approaching their work. We hope we've piqued your interest with some new concepts, methodologies, and tactics. And more than anything, we hope that you enjoyed your time spent listening to our program. We'll be back later this year with more episodes. Until then, this is your host, Jonathan Morgan, and you're listening to Design Everywhere, a show that invites you to ask, what if, and challenges you to understand the why that drives your designs. A special thank you to our executive producers, Joan Andrews and Michael Dialoya, our producer, Bridget Coyne, our audio engineer, Eric Coltnow. Our music director, David Allen Moss. My collaborators, Mike Trace and Renee Pollan. I'd like to thank our guest, Wendy Ju, former executive director of design research for Stanford University and current associate professor of information sciences at Cornell University. For more information on the books, papers, and other references, please check out the liner notes for this program. Design Everywhere is a production of The Front Porch People. To learn more about this and their other podcasts, please visit thefrontporchpeople.com. Thanks for joining us. Until next season, keep your eyes and ears open. Your next big idea might be right in front of you.
Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not, it's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily. This podcast was produced with the support of the Ohio Motion Picture Tax Credit and in partnership with the Ohio Development Services Agency.